You're listening to Savage Wonder, a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with veterans in the arts. This show is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. My guest today was Anthony Torres, a writer, performer, I believe the executive director is the exact title, of the Combat Hippies, which has now become an all-Puerto Rican uh, group of veterans doing, uh, God, what's the best word for it? Uh, I I guess performance art would be the best way to describe it. Um, Elevated, amplified, uh, steroid-abusing spoken word, maybe, might be another way of of doing it. Uh, It's a great, great multimedia performances. Um, And Anthony was kind enough to send me a link to a full length performance of their latest show, Amal. And uh, I was blown away by the, the staging, the way they use the multimedia format to um, deliver spoken word with more of an impact and, and as truly more of a performance piece. And as an entity that has done more than its share of spoken word performances, obviously uh, uh, I and, and vet rep, I guess, uh, are very interested in seeing stuff like that and seeing what people are doing with the form. So it was a pleasure to be able to sit down with Anthony and talk to him in his case, because Amal, because that the second show is um, not just personal as you would expect it would be. Um, but it's also a bit of a polemic. It's political. Um, even maybe tiptoes up to the line of propagandistic in places. Um, I thought it was important to to really get to know him and his story and uh, his MOS is a very it was in the army was a very interesting one a mental health technician um, deploying to Iraq and working at Abu Ghraib prison as a mental health specialist seemed very uh, unique and um, so we spend a bit more time on the military stuff than I normally do um, especially diving into MOSs and what your you know, battle rhythm was like on a deployment just because it was, it's, it's such a unique job field and clearly impacted him and, and hearing from him, uh, you know, how that, uh, how working for Iraqi prisoners, mental health impacted Anthony is I think a story or stories worth hearing. Um, and it's funny, I didn't say this to him in the episode, but I feel like he's probably got more shows in him just based off his Iraq experiences. Um, I felt like uh, Amal covered some, and there's, I think, probably even more. I don't know. Um, but anyway, super interesting guy. His childhood, um, his love of New York City obviously was going to win me over right off the bat. And uh, But then hearing about his childhood, um, the way that being raised in upstate New York affected him. Um, I also loved the resilience that seemed to be a recurring theme. And I think he and I kind of discovered as we were talking, I won't speak for him. What I picked up on in talking to him was how, uh, it's funny, but almost every time he said, you know, he had a lack of resources or a lack of support. um, He did something that, has become a significant bullet point in his life that it pushed him to a greater achievement. Um, obviously against greater adversity, 
but that's kind of the point of greater achievement, right? It can't be a great achievement without great adversity. And um, anyway, I thought that was an interesting theme that uh, that at least seems so to me in talking to him. But I really enjoyed it. I uh, really enjoyed uh, talking. Again, like many of our episodes, this could have gone a lot longer and um, and maybe should have because I felt like we didn't get into a lot of the artistic stuff until a bit later. But Anthony's just an interesting dude, and he's a really articulate and funny and engaging speaker. And uh, I, I was having too good a time talking about his backstory. So uh, anyway... I'm sure it will not be the last time he comes on the show and we talk through things. Uh, I'll just leave it at that, but great time talking with him. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this show. Um, I certainly enjoyed talking and putting it together. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director at vet rep. And this is the savage wonder of Anthony Torres. Welcome to the show, Anthony. How you doing? Thanks for I'm, having me. Dude, it's a pleasure. I'm really glad you could come on. Um, where are you right now? Are you down in Miami? I am in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay, okay. got you. Yeah. Uh, I got a lot of questions and I thought about how I wanted to approach this with you. And I think the best thing to do is do it in chronological order. So let's start with the origin story of uh of anthony torres what, what so you were in you were born in new york weren't you in new york yes. city yes okay. yes um i was born in brooklyn new york uh as my parents were uh it's really cool it's just a fun little family history thing that um my dad my brother and i were all born in the same hospital oh right on oh, i wow. think that's special to us because that's where kind of that all ends all these similarities because uh, I remember going to first grade in Utica, New York. We, we, we moved that summer between kindergarten and first grade upstate, very deep upstate. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and really left, you know, kind of everything. I mean, you know, a lot of family came. We kind of mm. uh, aunts and cousins and, you know, moved upstate with us. But um, I always longed for New York City. It was always like the home, you know. Um, where where in Brooklyn reason. were you guys? originally um my mother is from coney island okay uh and my dad um uh so we were we were in east new york i was yeah very young i was like sure four or whatever yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um but the neighborhoods that we frequented uh in even in visiting family um was mostly bay ridge actually oh really uh yeah yeah Uh, 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 when i was younger flatbush and then all over Brooklyn, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's so funny how New Yorkers are so prideful about their neighborhood yeah. and community. <laughs> yeah. Well, as a New Yorker, that's why I'm asking. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like, I know to everybody else, they've all now turned off this episode. And they're like, dude, what a fucking waste of time this was. But, uh, but for me, it's, it is interesting because, yeah, I don't think people that aren't New Yorkers can fully appreciate, like, understanding the nuances and the little differences and like, oh, shit. Oh, that's cool. That's, you know. You kind of are able to associate people um, kind of like the military with MOSs. It's like, oh, okay, you have a different, you know, types that go to different jobs, you know, it's like neighborhoods, you know, it's that kind of thing. What did New York City mean to you when you say like you always longed for it? Did you go down and visit it as you were growing up and see family or was it just kind of an impression of what it could hold or what, what, what did it mean? 
So this is interesting. This totally ties into military service. I know we're not going to, we're not in there yet, but we're not there yet. But <clears throat> um, it, it had to do with identity. You know, mm-hmm. uh, upstate New York has these pockets of diversity. You know, some mm-hmm. of the bigger cities like Buffalo, Albany, Rochester, mm-hmm. right? But for the most part, especially where I lived, there wasn't much, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, uh, as, you know, uh, you know, pretty fairly poor family, uh, you know, we, you know, I grew up in, in public housing projects and, you know, it was diverse. <laughs> it was diverse in, in that sense that, you know, we were poor and, you know, the, the black and brown communities just as as historically in New York City, um, you know, tend to live and work together, mm-hmm. you know, survive together in a sense. Um, there, there really was a lack of diversity, but also just culturally as a Puerto Rican, I found myself growing mm-hmm. up and feeling like New York City was the Mecca, Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> of New Yorkanness. Yeah, no, I was going to say, did you consider yourself a New Yorkan up in Utica? Do they have New Yorkans up in Utica? I think it, that's like a city thing, isn't it? it yes, it, yeah, it's totally a city thing. And it was kind of this badge that I feel like I could no longer carry, but I, I tried to hang on to. So in upstate mm. New York, I find myself, you know, feeling a bit um, just different, like, in, you know, an yeah, other. Sure. Sure. And then when I, but when I go to New York City, yep. yeah. you know, uh, I, one thing, a joke I tell folks is upstate, you know, my mother basically talks like Rosie Perez. So, you know, me and my family, they're like, you guys talk a little funny. You're loud, you know. And then when I go to New York, New York City, uh, it's almost the same thing. It's like, where are you guys from? You sound a little funny. You're not from around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was kind of like, where do I belong? You know, what's my, who am I? You know, am I, you know, not New York enough? Or, you know, <laughs> it was like this sense of belonging and identity that I, um, I think I was constantly reaching for. And I would take multiple trips a year, actually, uh, to New York City and visit both sides of the family, mm. go clothes shopping, you mm. know, just the access of, you know, all the things that I, that I love, you know, of hip hop culture, mm-hmm. um, great food. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just yeah. access to, I mean, everything, you know, I've always also, and I realize in retrospect how much I've always just been a fan of the arts and going to shows no matter, you know, I remember going to Alvin Ailey, you know, and watching oh, wow. you know, black yeah. ballet dancers. Yeah, sure. Uh, and other, you know, productions, even as a kid, my mother, um, was just always trying to kind of expose us to the, to the arts. I mean, specifically the performing arts is very odd. I was even acting in like little plays as a kid and I never like, I don't know. I never thought later on in life that mm-hmm. I'd be this deeply embedded, no pun intended yeah. <laughs> in the, in arts work. Yeah. What, why do you think she pushed you into it? Did, was she a latent artist? Did she try to do art herself? What was her interest, do you think? Um, I think, I think as a, a you know, a poor single mother, um, I think she just looked for opportunities to get us engaged. Mm, okay. And yep. I think it was just always important for her to, to show us new things. Mm. So, you know, um, whether it was these random field trips across the state yeah. or going to, you know, historical sites or monuments or museums, there was always this 
You know what's funny about it? I feel like I need to talk to her more about that. I don't <laughs> think I have a solid answer about with that. Uh, I know that um, it seemed like she was trying to show us that there's more out in the world than our neighborhood, our community. Um, even though she was also deeply rooted in the, in the community, sure. uh, um, she'd done, you know, social work and kind of case management, case management with nonprofits, uh, in upstate New York for a year. I mean, I'm pretty much my whole life. It was mm. like this idea of service, mm. um, mm. which obviously deeply impacted me now as a social worker, but also, um, definitely contributed to me joining the military. Gotcha. Then when you were going into the city, um, I'm assuming this is teenage years we're talking about, right? Where you can travel by yourself and go into the city? Even younger. Okay. I mean, I, this is, uh, I think this is beyond the statute of limitations. <laughs> my brother and I, my brother and I would take, uh, you know, the Greyhound bus. Oh, yeah, sure. And, and certain trips, we'd have to switch over in Albany. And I remember doing some of those trips uh, with my brother. I don't know if I ever did any alone, but this mm-hmm. is around 12-ish years old. Wow. And and a bit scary, but it was kind of like, I don't know, you know, uh, growing up with this lack of resources, you know, we didn't really have a car until I was like a teen. And um, it was kind of like, this is, you know, this is the way it needs to be done or not at all. Yep. Right. And I, I needed to you know, be brave, be mature and, you know, just try to keep myself and my brother safe. So my father would pick us up from Grand Central State or Penn Station. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Yeah. Uh, and I remember doing that on several occasions. Wow. And, you know, there's definitely this maturation process that gets sped up, um, you know, in a single parent home, you know, in a, yeah. you know, living in poverty the way we did it was almost like I had to assume this role of responsibility, um, which in retrospect, you know, that's a hell of a burden to put on kids. I know sure. it's not uncommon. Sure. Yeah. On the other hand, by the time I got into the military and later on in college, um, man, was I resilient. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a, a muscle that gets developed and maybe early and, and I think it can disform or it can strengthen, you know, depending on how the person internalizes it. I think yes, that's, yes, I think that's, absolutely. yeah, I could definitely see that when you um, went into the city and you'd go see these shows or go do whatever, did you take some of that back with you to Utica? Did you start finding yourself gravitating towards artistic things, wanting to do hip hop? Was there anything like that where it, it started to, you started to get the germ of an idea of something you wanted to do? I was just always enamored by hip hop culture as a whole, mm-hmm. not just, I never tried to be a rapper, <laughs> but I totally was inspired with poetry. That was kind of mm-hmm. my parallel to it was to mm-hmm. start writing these pretty bad love poems, the girlfriends in high school. Totally. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but they liked it. You know, they were impressed and I was like, <laughs> yeah, this is cool. Um, it was just fun. And I was also pretty introverted. Not, I don't know. If it, I was just shy. Yeah. I was shy. So, you know, I really wasn't that outspoken. So, you know, writing um, was this way for me to communicate and really kind of open up, you know, and just share. So, um, but back to that influence, man, I just, um, I loved 
I was okay. This is what gravitated me towards just hip hop in general was this idea of that it's kind of its own culture that everyone's invited to be a part of. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that like gave me a base that I lacked, you know. And, and um, who are you listening to? Like, was this the mid '90s? Was this like Tribe <laughs> yeah. Quest, KRS One? Like, who uh, was it you were, you were listening to? What well, I have the funniest story about Wu Tang Clan because you know I think I was early in junior high. We were young. I might have been 12 and 11 or 12. And my, my friend said, hey, you know, sister was a few years older. She's like, hey, man, my, my sister's, you know, listening to this, this rap group. Um, and they just sound really cool. I don't know, really know what they're talking about. Um, but they're called Wu-Tang Clan. And he like gave me the tape. And I remember just listening to that and my mind being blown. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, yeah. and then... Um, I remember the first couple of albums I ever purchased was first Method Man's album from Wu Tang mm. Clan, and then Red Man, ironically, who are actually you know have done albums together and right. um, have this affinity for both of them. Uh, and it, it just seemed like from from clothing to language mm. um, to this self confidence. It just really, I just really gravitated towards hip hop culture. And I also felt like I related to many aspects of it. Um, and, you know, and really this wasn't until the, maybe a few years ago that I really started learning more about the impact um, of Puerto Ricans in hip hop culture that, you know, we were there throughout, you know, in the South Bronx and across sure. the different boroughs of New York City uh, and had a hand in, 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 you know, all aspects of, of hip hop. That was also a source of pride for me. Well, absolutely. And I feel like, especially with the East coast rappers, especially New York based rappers, just like any New Yorker, fucking New York accountants, like you can't be a New Yorker and not be part Jewish, part Puerto Rican. <laughs> part, you, know, you, you just can't. You're like, if you're a New Yorker, like there's going to be that part of you. It, it, of you culture. can't ride the subway together that much with so many different people. And that's, I mean, as, as a New Yorker myself, I mean, what I loved about New York was um, the hate. And it was hate built of brotherly hate. It was like, yeah, of course I fucking hate you. Cause why can't the Egyptian wear fucking deodorant, but it's you're, you'll fight for them. Like you're still your people, but it's like, but yeah, but, but and as a result, it's like that sibling rivalry. And it, to me, there was something, and it was so funny because I remember when I moved to the middle, this is, sorry, not to make this about me, but I, I, I don't get to talk to that many New Yorkers on the show. Um, but when, uh, when I moved to the Midwest and then I was with, you know, just flat out white kids that had, that were all around white kids. And I'd say something like, oh, well, yeah, you, well, you know how Dominicans are. Like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck kind of, what, what are you, a KKK? I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, that's how it is in New York. We all hate each other, but it's all because we're brothers. It's like, it's how we show love. Like you're, you're joshing your, your sibling. And, uh, and it was so funny, but, but I, I think there's a part of that, that you internalize so many aspects. And that, I think that's right. I think for the hip hop culture, it needs all the different blood of New York coursing through it. And no matter who the mouthpiece is, it's like you're going to internalize all these different cultures that are there. And that's kind of what makes it cool, I think. Yeah. It, you know, I remember watching a like a, a ABC News story about like a, an actor. I don't know if they were really pregnant or not on different trains in Chicago and New York and San Francisco, different places. And they, it was like a social experiment to see 
who would give up their seats, get a seat on average. And New York blew everyone out the water. I might be mistaken. Oh, really? I have to fact check that. Uh. But it made me so happy to see because, you know, there's this uh, image of New Yorkers just being like angry and oh, yeah. defensive and self-centered and, you know, um, but then, you know, from what I can remember, uh, you know, time after time, folks got up and was like, you know, there you go. Miss. And it was. No, it, it's yeah. true. Did you, did you when you uh, just to jump ahead for a second, did you ever have to do your SF-86 for the military? Did you fill that out for a clearance? Like and actually have to yeah. go through the 96 pages or whatever the hell it is. Yes. Yes. Do you mean like 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 your security, security clearance? clearance? Yeah. Yes, I, had yeah. A, I had a secret clearance. At one OK. Point. Yeah, because yeah. I, I remember they looked at me sideways because they were like, why were you getting in all these fights? Like I had to list like every physical altercation. I was like, <laughs> dude, you got to understand, like I'm in the city, like I'm in New York, like oh, you're going to mean mug, like you're going to get mean mugged. You're going to get stiff shouldered on the subway. But at the same time, and I think a lot of people that aren't from the city don't understand that you're going to get stiff shouldered. You're going to get into a pushing match. Punches may be thrown. And then you're, yeah, you're going to give up your seat. <laughs> like, like you're, 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 you're still, you still love everybody, but it's like, but yeah, you're going to piss on trees and mark territory all the time because there's too many fucking people and everybody's in your personal space. And of course people are going to piss you off. But it, as I say, it's like that, it's that sibling, you know, love, hate dynamic. Where you're constantly like, oh, fucking people. But then you're like, but I need to be around. I, I can't live without being around all these different people, you know? And I think that's a unique thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about New York. Anyway, that's a long way of saying that's fucking awesome if they did give up their seats more than everybody else. Because I, I think that is, I think that's one of those idiosyncratic things that a lot of people miss. Um, and that convergence of all the cultures in New York. I don't, I mean, I know all big cities have a lot of cultures. But I don't think any quite matches the the amount and the depth that you find in New York, that you can like go deep into Haitian culture in New York. You can go deep into Dominican culture. You can go deep into Russian culture. Like you can go, there's long, deep verticals. And I don't yeah. know how many other cities have that, but I don't you know. know. You, can, you can find like high quality food, ethnic food. Uh, from anywhere in the world, basically, yeah. you know, at yeah. the drop of a dime. That's yeah. so cool to me. Uh <laughs> Listen, and not to make this sound like I'm New York City Chamber of Commerce here, but I mean, yeah, I I, I think that's a cool thing. And I, I guess that's a long way of saying I can see why it would be so attractive um to you. And it's funny because I mean, I'm I'm uh, you know, I'm whatever, I'm a generally European mutt. My biggest ethnic parts are Mexican and German. Um, so um, you know, as I, I guess as somebody growing up in the city where it was a minority majority city, I also had an identity thing where I just had to talk like a Puerto Rican because my friends were Puerto Rican, or I would talk like, uh, you know, an Italian from, from Bensonhurst or something like I'd have to, I'd have to fit in with another group. So I think there is something about those years, those preteen years where you're, where you, especially when you're not, when you don't look like everybody else, where you do try to find that sense of identity and that's and and anyway i i can relate to what you're saying that makes a lot of sense to me what did you find yourself doing then in these preteen years up in utica what was your spare time were you just chilling out watching tv trying to stay out of trouble were you did you find yourself picking up a pen and doing a lot of writing what what, what were you getting into um hmm <clears throat> i you know, I think I was 
I think I received a lot of training for social work before I became a social worker because mm. my mom's community work was like not even a, a second thought. It was like, you know, uh, we, you know, we not only, you know, we not only participated in, you know, in ways of helping other folks, volunteering mm. for church, going mm. to food kitchens, you know, doing community cleanups. It was like that was like a part of my 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 family and life early on, early, early on. You know, and we also at times, you know, relied on those resources to get by the same very yeah. same ones. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I um, I've said a few times how my mother, you know, leaned on basically like nonprofits and mm-hmm. and uh, community centers and the church yeah. and churches to help raise us. You know, so my, my earliest memories are of, uh, the YMCA, you know, including their summer camp. Um, uh, I was in big brothers, big sisters, Mm, uh, at 13, I was chosen to be part of this first cohort through a, uh, state grant, um, for a program called the young scholars program, which was, um, basically kind of quote unquote at risk youth. Um, it was like this support program just to kind of ensure your academic success, but mm. also like help, you know, just make you a good person, a, a, a community minded person. So that program mm. also, um, you know, had us volunteering, doing cleanups, doing a summer oh. prep program for the next school year at Utica college, which is now mm. Utica university. Um, it's funny. I recently, I just wanted to find out whatever happened to that program because I graduated in 1999 and, you know, here we are 20 plus years later and I, I'm doing a lot of reflecting lately, actually on childhood. I run it and, uh. and it's still going, it's still going. They're like really free tutoring summer prep programs. Wow. I mean, I, I reached out to the director because I was like, you know, I was Definitely not an A student leaving high school. <laughs> um, I feel like I made up ground later in life. Um, but that program had a major impact on me, whether it was the college mm-hmm. tours, whether it was focusing on volunteer work in the community, um, and also kind of the empowerment that comes from learning. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it it really fostered this sense of community work and, yeah. you know, uh, and service. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Did you find yourself at all, like, because of your exposure to the arts, did you find, did you consider yourself in any degree an artist at that point? Like coming into high school, coming, coming out of high school, was there any part of you? Okay. All right. Not at all. Not at all. Um, you know, I don't know where this fits in things. I just want to share that. Um, you know, I, (laughs) I remember writing an album review (laughs) <laughs> of like Jay-Z's like second album, I think, or third. And I I was just I was just such a geek. I would read, you know, these hip hop magazines and I would read reviews all the time. And I would yeah. see how they would describe what makes the album good, the language about the bass and the cadences and the storytelling and the cohesive album works. And I remember it was a senior it was a senior year journalism course and I wrote an album review. That was oh. one of my papers. Yeah. And my 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 uh, prof- uh, teacher said, "I'm 
she she gave me a B and she said it was great, but I feel like this might be plagiarized, not your own work. I was and there was no wow. evidence of that. I said I did not take this from anywhere. I wrote this myself. Um and it was one of these experiences, there were many. There were many in my pre-military life where um I I feel like I I really lacked support even, you know, even with the, these programs and community work, I totally lacked my father lived in New York City, so he didn't raise me. So I feel like I was seeking this guidance, support, discipline, yeah. which yeah. obviously drew me uh, to the military later on. But um, it, there wasn't a lot of encouragement, at least in the ac- mostly in academia, in, in high school. Um, mm. you know, but I found opportunities to write. Writing was a big thing, by the way. So I wrote for the school okay. paper. Oh, okay. This, yeah. yeah, on this multicultural event where I just brought in... Por- you know, uh, arroz con gandules, Puerto Rican rice and beans. And yeah, they were like, what's yeah. that? Tastes good. I've never seen that before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wrote for the school paper. I wrote for the yearbook for a childhood friend that passed when I was 13 years old. I wrote kind of this in memoriam thing, mm. uh, senior year. And I even did like an internship at the local paper where huh. I just follow around, ironically, a Puerto Rican journalist. <laughs> Maybe the only one at yeah, the time. Yeah, the, the, the two York. of you that were filling out that demographic in, in the county, right? Yeah. And, wow. Um, so writing totally was um, the route. And I, yeah. I really left high school um, wanting to be a journalist. Really? Storytelling. Yeah. Interesting. yeah. And what, did, you know, did you know enough to know what kind of journalism? Were you drawn to like being a beat reporter? Were you thinking of opinion pieces? Like what? What was it that was drawing you to it? Hmm. I don't think I was clear on that. Maybe okay. that's part of the reason why I, <laughs> why I kind of fell out there? of that. Um, but I, yeah. I loved just personal stories. I loved. I don't. I don't. I wonder what category they would fit in. You know, like for example, oh, like human multicultural. Yeah, I guess lifestyle. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, you know, like that multicultural event. I I walked around. I took notes down. Who was there? Mm. You know, I observed and then. You know, I just kind of reflected on the event <clears throat> and even in a larger sense, what that meant for people of different cultures to share their food, mm. you know, and, yeah. and breaking bread and how that builds community, which I've Absolutely. learned so much more about right. as the years have gone on. But um, yeah, yeah, those kind of, I feel like storytelling has always been an interest of mine. Um and outside of that, it really was literally just like <laughs> love poems to every girlfriend I was dating. And just <laughs> that was like the it's so funny. I, I, I actually have a few somewhere. Um, it's so funny to read that, you know, 20 plus years later. But I, you, you know, you saying that makes me wonder if girls always said yes, just think how many less writers there would be. Like people never would have gotten their start. Like you got to get your start, getting your heart broken and have an unrequited love, you know? So funny. Yeah, yeah. So you graduated high school in 99 then. Yes. And then what was next? Oh man. Um, okay. That's 99. You know, so that program that I was a part of, and this is just fresh in my mind because I've been thinking about it and talking about it recently there was an opportunity to go to this college, which at the time was a branch of Syracuse University, okay. uh, on a four-year uh, scholarship, if you graduated with the Regents Diploma. 
which I think, huh. I, I don't know if that still exists or if it's only in California and New York, I believe. Uh, I could not pass Regents Math. So I failed it, took a summer course, passed it, took it a second time, failed it, and pleaded with the college to let me in. You know, at that point, I'd been a peer, I'd been a student mediator, I volunteered for local, I worked with local nonprofits on like right. uh, STD education and HIV prevention. I'd done all this community work, but goddamn math. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just think of like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, one of my favorite shows, how sometimes they just blurt out things in anger. And I just like, you know, goddamn math, I hate you. <laughs> but so uh, I, I wore the nicest outfit I could get. I prepped a little speech and I went to the college with one of the social workers and we just sat with someone that I don't remember who and just kind of pleaded our case. And they were like, sorry, you know, this is state funding. Yeah. You don't meet the requirements. Right. You know, and that led me to the local community college where I dropped out, I mean, within a semester. Um, and that's when I started doing these minimum wage jobs at nursing homes and different places and feeling miserable and watching a lot of my friends go to SU, Syracuse yeah. University, yeah. NYU, yep. you know, Cornell, all these, you know, all these schools in upstate New York. Um, and I was like, God damn it. That would have been nice to do a little bit of planning and maybe have a little more support with that. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, you know, my mom, at least this is <laughs> the last time we spoke about this, she was like, we were totally on survival mode. You know, it was yeah. like, I just didn't want you guys to like get into drug addiction. Yeah. You know, as she right. was in recovery herself. Wow. Uh, wow. Uh, drug addiction. I didn't want you to go to jail. I didn't want you to, you know, get someone pregnant as a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that was like a success. But leaving high school, it was like there was no future thinking. It was survival mode. So when it ended, I was looking around like, what the fuck do I do? And um, that's when my father, who served in the National Guard in the 80s, started encouraging me to look into the military. You know? At that point, where was your head? Were you resentful? Were you just depressed? Were you optimistic were you kind of uh like did you see a gear shift in your head where you were like i'm not who i was on graduation day of high school i've got to make like now it's on me i've got to make some changes was there any like desperation i don't know i'm I'm trying to project here was there any of that stuff going on totally totally i you know there's i kind of want to i i kind of don't want to be offensive to upstate new york folks but I felt there was a lack of resources, a lack of options for me, and that I needed to make a move. So there was like this, yep. this desire, like I, I need to, I need to do something. I need to, something needs to shift. Something needs to change because sitting around, you know, making who knows, t- totally less than ten bucks an hour. Yeah, <laughs> these lo- these these shitty jobs around town. That's not how I want to live my life. Yeah, Just not happy. Yep, and. Um, my father uh, was a National Guardsman in the 80s in New York City. And I mean, to this day, he wears a high and tight. It's, it's kind of weird. He looks, like a, he looks like a drill instructor from the 80s. It's, but he's always had this <laughs> love. I mean, and to this day, he wears, you know, his Army shirts. I, I, I've given him 
PT shirts over the years. He has the old school gray ones. He That's has hilarious. Black and gold. And uh, he still has his dog tags. It's very prideful for him. Yeah. Um, ironically, you know, speak about family traditions. I think this was almost his thinking, you know? Yeah. 20 years before me, you know, it was kind of like, what do I do with myself? You know, when you're feeling a lack of direction, a lack of discipline, a lack of, you know, goals and motivation, what, you know, what Absolutely. do we do? And, uh, and the military markets that, you know, they, they want that. They're like, yep. you know, it's, it's part of the, uh, you know, the, the draw is we'll give you those things. But we need you, you know, you will be yeah. government property. We just want yeah. to be clear on that. And no matter what your job is, you know, <laughs> you're going to do what we need you to do. You know, yeah. I guess we'll talk more about that later. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, going with that understanding, it was almost like this sacrifice of like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm a bit scared. I'm yep. really scared. Yeah. Oh, can I tell you about my recruiter really quick? Yeah. Go for it. Kidding. Yeah. Okay. So the desire to leave. And the, the fear of the unknown, I guess you could say. So I reached out to this recruiter. And, okay, first of all, the, the Marines, I just went into the office. And I remember, you know, I was just trying to, I was fishing. I was like, okay, you know. And my father was like, look, you're going to go. You need to go infantryman. You need to go Marine Corps. You need to fucking be a man. You know, go all out. And then 9-11 happened. And he was like. So you weren't ah. in. You weren't in by 9-11. Okay. All right. That's a big uh, point. Okay. Yeah. Well. I was. I was a reservist during 9-11. So that was, that's, uh, okay. that's what I was going to tell you is okay. I w- at, he was urging me to go and the Marine Corps, they showed up to my house on a Saturday morning. Like <laughs> they just walked, two guys just walked into my living room. My, my, my brother and mom came out. They're like, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, what's happening? They're like, look, son, you know, we can get you out. We can ship you out in December. You, you'll get a job later on. Uh, you know, what do you want to do? What are you trying to do here? You know, trying to get out, trying to, you know, you will give you some bonus money. Go, go, go. And I was like, I don't like this pressure. No, I want to leave when I want to. I want to pick my job. I want a bonus, you know, I, and, and I was scared. So the army recruiter had a little more, you know, had the soft gloves on. Right. Kind of like (laughs) staying in touch. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? You keep reaching out and then vanishing over the course of several months. He's like, what's wrong? What's going on here? And I said, I'm scared to leave, honestly. Yeah. I'm scared to go. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what this is going to be like. And he said, look, my wife is a reservist down the road at a, at a unit, a civil affairs battalion. Go check that job out. It's pretty cool. You seem like a people yeah. person. You might like the gig. So I go to drill <clears throat> and I just kind of observe. I think they, I don't know. Uh, honestly, one of the things I loved about civil affairs is that it was, it was people work. Yeah. It was, it was really yeah. cool. I was like, oh shit. It's part. It's under Special Operations Command. Um, there's this, you know, work with you know displaced civilians. There's opportunities to go to language training in Monterey, California. Uh, you know, there's this work where you, you know, you're this intermediary between the military and you know uh, communities of folks or, or leaders. And I was like, this seems pretty cool. Yeah. So and the I cultures, agree. right? And all the different cultures you can potentially interact. Exactly. With. Yeah, yeah. You do cultural yeah. assessments and you yeah. brief units on on religious sites and you know what to what to understand you know what hands to shake and don't show your feet and all that shit and <laughs> and that way you can go to any restaurant in new york and at least start like with <laughs> two lines of actual like na- native language before you run out of things to say yeah but you can at least yeah. go to every restaurant and do that yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah what? Well, and I told, and he said, "Look, you're scared to go on active duty. It's all good. We can get you a few thousand dollars. We need. We're looking for soldiers for civil affairs. We'll 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 send you to boot camp, and you can you know come back to Utica, go to college, and drill, and be happy. So that's what I did. What's crazy is I found myself in March. March 7th, 2000, you know, we always remember dates in the middle yeah. as vets. Uh, I found myself in Fort Benning, Georgia. I was in fucking Sand Hill, home of the infantry. I was like, what the fuck am I doing here? Why? <laughs> and I met another civil affairs specialist and he was like, he was like, dude, this is fucking intense. Are we like, first of all, he's like, first of all, we're in the service. Second of all, you know, it's like this peacemaking yeah. work. And he's like, this liaison work. Uh, liaison to the world you know that was our that was like our our thing and um i remember him saying like shit there's a lot of like kill 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 and all this <laughs> and i was like honest and then you know what's interesting man I, I mean i never thought of it this way but this survival mentality for me mm-hmm. it really pushed me through uh whether yeah. it was boot camp and my yeah. deployment to iraq in 2004 you know it was kind of like Fuck, I'm just here. I'm here. Whatever led to me being here. Yep. Now I need to just get through it. Yep. Get through it. And I feel like I've, I guess I've always kind of had that like survival instinct of just like, you know, and ironically in both places, I had someone kind of in my face like, ah, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Evoking this fear. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, no, no time for that. No, no, That's no. Right. We need to do the work and fucking get through this shit. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, that. I mean, I think you're hitting on, I think, a big truth, though. And I think the, I think you're capturing what so many people's military experience is like, where the bottom drops out. And you're like, wait, what the fuck? Wait, I'm doing what now? And But that's where you find that strength. That's something that doesn't come out unless you have that oh shit moment. And it's kind of counterintuitive. But I think sometimes, yeah, you need those karmic slaps upside the head where it's like, oh shit, because you won't find those muscles otherwise. You know, if you had gone... If you'd gotten your thing and gone to Syracuse, would you have had the same strengths? I don't know. It might have become other strengths. It might have just been equal but different. But also, there might have been stuff you might not never have developed. I don't know. I'm I'm speculating, but I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like you don't know where you top off at. Like, yeah. you know your limits. Yeah. You're like pushed there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of times where I was scared. I was stressed. I was, you know, uh, second guessing myself and. And pushing through that. Yeah. Yeah. Pushing through that. Yeah. yeah. I think, th- I, I think I could be wrong, but I think that make, that's a huge difference in the veteran versus civilian mindset is I think veterans have done stuff. They are distinctly uncomfortable with, with their own personal security and safety and have found a way to cope. And as a result, other things that life throws at you, it's not to say they're not more difficult things that come down the road or equally difficult things, but you're kind of prepped for it. I think in a way that not all civilians, but many civilians will never have to get out of that comfort zone to that degree. Right. Yeah. I think kind of <laughs> like, I mean, maybe this isn't the, this isn't the right way, but almost like this expectation of like, there's likely, you know, we're, we're going to be, we're, we're likely to be in different situations that require Fast thinking, uh, adjusting, you know, uh, and like just figuring shit out. Like, yeah, you yeah. know, yeah. totally, totally. Yeah. What did 9-11 mean to you then? So you're in the reserves and now 
what oh, right. what happens now so, for you? <clears throat> so it, I didn't realize the time difference, but you know, I graduated in May, and by November '99 is when all that stuff happened. The, a couple of jobs drop out of the local college. The recruiter, yeah. you know, September, yeah, yeah. October. I'm like, all right, yeah. I'm good. <clears throat> Uh, so that's November 99. I signed the contract and then March 2000, I'm in, I'm in Benning. Then, you know, a bunch of us get on a coach bus and go straight to Fort Bragg and train with psychological operations for six, uh, two and a half months was AIT. And, and then back to my reserve unit. Um, and then I just started drilling. I go to Morrisville, uh, SUNY Morrisville, which I, I think is called Morrisville State College now. It's kind of in between Utica and Syracuse. Okay. Uh, literally right. farm country. You can smell the shit in the fall. Right. <laughs> but I just thought it was like a way for me to kind of get away, but not too far away from home. And I was a, a journalism student. Okay. Uh, they were one of the first campuses to have laptops with the uh, the, the cards, like the Wi-Fi cards on the oh, side yeah. of the laptop. Yeah, yeah, Wi-Fi. Yeah. So people are walking around campus and sitting outside typing on laptops, and it was fucking like yeah, it was, it was like the future. It was like yeah. Star Wars. Yeah. Everyone was yeah. like, "Holy yeah. shit!" Yeah, <laughs> that was really cool. <clears throat> Everyone got like basically, you know, a, a laptop on campus as part of tuition, and was part of that. It was that was a really cool thing, um, and I found myself, you know, going to class, drilling, going, you know, driving home, drilling thirty yeah. minutes, coming back and forth. Um, started out really strong <laughs> by my third semester. I dropped out. Uh, again, I feel like even after boot camp, you know, I'm drilling yeah. for a little while. Uh, I'm, I'm in, you know, I'm enjoying writing, but I think, I don't know. I think I just lacked, I, I found myself kind of lacking the discipline to see shit through to stay motivated mm-hmm. and focused on, on things. And, um, and then nine 11 happens and my reserve unit is like, we'll get ready for something. I don't yeah. know, I don't know yeah. what's going to happen, but yeah. <laughs> we're, we're likely we're going, you know, we're going yeah. somewhere. And, uh, that was pretty scary. You know, it was interesting going around in upstate New York in, in my BDUs, uh, during that time, it was like, it was like a novelty, you know, it was, it, it was just a do- totally different vibe from post 9-11. Then there was like this fear in people's eyes of like, God bless you. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like this, like, yeah. <laughs> can I pray for you? You know, yeah. felt like yeah. that kind of shit. And <laughs> um, there was this tension in the reserve unit, you know, you know, Afghanistan starts, we actually, this is a long time ago, but I don't, I don't think we, we didn't go to Afghanistan. What happened was we got orders for the Iraq war. Wait, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember my history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm drilling. I'll tell you what happened is I drop out of Morrisville and I feel my, I feel like I'm back to step one again. The only thing really yeah. going well for me is the reserves. I'm going to uh, JRTC field mm-hmm. training for a- annual training in, mm-hmm. in Fort Polk, Louisiana. I go there twice and get all these fucking medals, you mm-hmm. know, c- certificates, yeah. Yeah. all these little things that, you know, build up my self-esteem, make me feel competent and capable, you know, yeah. little pats on your back. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, these little these symbols, you know, of 
even just of appreciation, how, you know, I, I never get, I, I always lacked, yeah. you know, yeah. just, just fucking pat on the back at a boy. Like just yeah. very little things made me feel like empowered. Like, yeah. oh, okay. I'm not a fucking, you know, uh, loser. I'm not, you know, I have potential when I'm being, when I'm, I notice when I'm being pushed to do shit, I'm not only seeing it through, I'm usually doing it well. I was like, oh shit. I can, like, uh, do, you know, <laughs> and I'm yeah. being put in positions of responsibility and even leadership. So I'm, you know, I'm getting these achievement medals and, you know, yeah. and I found myself back at my mom's house. This is like fall. Yeah. This is uh, early O2. And I, w- I, I just felt like I was b- uh, back at step square one. Yeah. And it was like, I need to make a move now. And I, f- I felt ready to jump into active duty because really that was the only thing going well in my life. Yeah. I was an E4. Um, I already kind of understood the nature of military service, which is just shut up, do your job, you know, do what you're told. <laughs> don't start, you know, don't get yourself in the trouble. Don't do anything unnecessary and you'll do well. And that's what I was doing. Yeah. I was just showing up, doing a fucking job and, you know, promotions and acknowledgements. And yeah, I was like, okay, okay. What also excited me was that civil affairs was only a reservist job at the time. I have no idea what it's doing these days. I remember there was only one unit, which was yeah. SF down in Fort Bragg at the time. And I was like, I'm not doing that shit. That's not my, that's not for me. <laughs> uh, so I knew I had to switch MOSs and I, I, I jumped at that opportunity. Let me pick a job where I can get trained and I can take that shit, whether it's four years or 20 years later, I can get out and use it. Yeah. So I was like, I want to go in the medical field. My ASVAP expired, so I had to retake it immediately <laughs> and scored lower than the first time. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> I want to be an x-ray tech. And oh, yeah. they were like, we can't waive that many points. Yeah, your your yeah. score's too low, dude. And I was like, <laughs> no. So they were like, why don't you become a cook, a water treatment specialist, uh, yeah. a medic? And I was like, I don't want to do none of that shit. But I do want to work in a medical setting. And I saw a mental health tech. It's funny. at. Uh, Oh, what's it called? Maps. Maps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, at Syracuse, New York, the 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 NCO that was there got like, I mean, he was totally. I know he was playing a game. I already knew the head games at that point, but he got frustrated with me, quote unquote, and and was like, "Okay, well, you you pick a job. I'll be back in twenty minutes. You go through the MOSs that you qualify for." And I just saw mental health, and I was like, "Holy shit, that's like a thing! I didn't know uh-huh. that." And I said, "That seems interesting." Okay, so I'm gonna go to San Antonio. For six months AIT, um, I'm gonna work at a hospital, but not you know not like a medic or you know, not really dealing with blood. I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do this. So in October '02, I was able to get out of my reserve contract, get an active duty contract, and leave just as my unit was getting orders. Oh wow! For Iraq, right? Okay. Which was I think what was invasion March '03, right? '03, right? yeah, yeah. So I'm leaving my fucking unit. Oh, man, you talk about guilt. Yeah, yeah. There's a different kind of guilt that came with my deployment, which I ended up, you know, going to Iraq anyway, like a year later. But to leave guys that I met in boot camp, trained with at Fort Bragg, been drilling with for two years. Yeah, yeah. To say goodbye to them knowing that they're going to war, I totally felt like an asshole. 
I also felt a bit selfish. Like I need to do this for me. Like I wasn't intentionally, you know, like ducking the dirt draft. Like, right, I was like right, right. I'm trying yeah. to make a move. And at that time, that's when my father was like, ah, maybe you don't want to go on active duty. Yeah. He was yeah, like, no, yeah, yeah. don't, don't. Yeah. Maybe just go back to college. Get a job. <laughs> and I was like, no, dad, I got to go. I got to go. Um, and I left in October 2002 to Texas. And that's where I ended up being stationed, Fort Hood, at the, uh, well, it's now a medical center, but yeah. Darno Army Community Hospital, something like that, back then. So yeah. I was there from 02 yeah. to 06. And it's a little different story about how the fuck I ended up at Abu Ghraib prison in 2004. Let's get into that. Yeah, <laughs> let, let's let's talk that through. Because, yeah, you were there at a real interesting time. And um, and I think first, uh, talk about the uh, first deploying to Iraq. Did that, getting on the plane, did that alleviate a lot of guilt? Were you like, hey, fuck it. I'm going to Iraq too. I got nothing to be ashamed of now. Nobody can say I, I haven't done my piece. Was there any of that? The guilt was before that. Such a funny story. So weird. Let me try to summarize this. But uh, you know, when you work at, or maybe you don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm not sure of all your military background. But when you work at a community hospital or medical center, they, you don't. They don't deploy you because you guys are, you know, right, right. Uh, you know, helping give birth and yeah. handling, you know, emergencies in the ER. You can't take a whole medical unit like that. So there was just these orders. I, it was called Profis. It was like this professional filler slot system where they would handpick medical soldiers and mm. put them in field hospitals or field okay. units yeah. and deploy, deploy them that way. So gotcha. uh, my NCO, she was an E7. She happened to be out this one week and the E5 below her, by the way, I was working inpatient psychiatry at Fort Hood for my first year. Okay. Um, so I'm working like different shifts evening graveyard shift I'm, yeah. I'm 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 living across the street in the barracks uh and i'm i'm seeing like you know folks with you know attempted suicides i mean everything yeah. from drinking bleach to you know putting a gun to their head and so, somehow living through that sure rape victims people you know with their first schizophrenia or bipolar episodes i mean this is like uh, and i'm like 23 uh, i'm like yeah i'm really young i'm like 22 and man, you talk about a deep dose of like mental illness. Yeah. I found myself, I was facilitating groups. I was restraining people. I was fucking, you know, we're doing checks on everyone every 15 minutes. Uh, I learned a lot. It was a major crash course into mental health. Uh, totally why I'm still doing mental health work to this day. Well, and um, actually, Anthony, can you talk real quick just for people? I'm not even 100% sure of it. Can you just talk about what you're trained and enabled to do in that MOS, isn't it? Because if oh, I understand yeah. right, it's the officers that are the psychiatrists per yes. se, and then you're like doing admin for them or whatever else they need, right? You're kind of like they're, yeah, you're kind of like their assistant. Yeah. You know, you know how okay. like the tech and the specialist jobs are like, you're working for the warrant officer, you're working right. for the officer or the senior NCO. It was like one of those things. So, um, but the training was pretty in depth. I mean, it was six months of training at Fort Sam, Fort Sam Houston. Uh, in San Antonio, and w they kind of broke down the history of military psychology, you know, wow. from from the you know the creation of PTSD as a diagnosis after the Vietnam War, the terms and treatments of you know combat trauma throughout you know U.S. military history, 
Um, and then it got into like very specific, like, uh, you know, like how do we do mental health in the army, you know? And, mm-hmm. and the idea is always to kind of treat and assess and get folks back to the field. Right. Yeah, sure. You, you know, yeah. Get, get, Getting get back people, in the fight. Yeah. It's like a physical injury kind of yep. like, yep. and there, and we were trained in kind of, uh, you know, part of the job was like psychoeducation, like teaching people, which I totally did during my deployment, you know, whether it's about addressing suicide, mental health, just trying to, to do that. Um, and then like counseling skills, just very, very basic, how to work with people. I don't really remember like group facilitation, but it has to be, I'm sure we did that. Um, but, uh, and then kind of like understanding our role in the, in the army medical system, Mm. you know, and kind of how we work with folks, say someone who, you know, shuts down in the middle middle of deployment. So we do training exercises where we're, you know, in combat and here's an NCO, you know, that's suicidal or, or traumatized or, you know, shutting down. How do we work with them? You know, what are the, there's like these uh, levels of treatment where you kind of just get them out, get them off the front line. Yeah. Sometimes a little rest, you know, yeah. a little talking, let them come down and then try to get them back. And then other times um, it's like, how do we get this person the fuck out of here? Like they're just not safe yeah. for themselves or anybody else, you know, and, and, and understanding that it, it, it's always up to the, uh, the commander's decision that all we can do is kind of um, give our, this is really the, the psychologist, psychiatrist job, um, give their assessment yeah. and their recommendations. And then it's always up to the, you know, the company yep. commander, um, or the first sergeant to make that, make that decision about take them out, you know, leave them yeah. in. And there's always this, you know, a lot of times they lean on that advice because they don't want to do something to yeah. put, you know, they don't want someone dying or putting someone else at risk. Um, or they you know, so, um, I really enjoyed it, man. I, I I did enjoy kind of deep diving into this. Um, and again, it's people work. It's people work. And it's a skill set too, right? I mean, it's yeah. like something where now it's like, this is a, this is real work. This is actually a profession. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I worked under uh, psychiatrists. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting, like how much I, I never realized over the years, uh, social workers, psychiatrists, psychologists, and psychiatric nurses, right? Mm-hmm. Every setting I was in, military, I later huh. worked in the VA, which I guess maybe we'll get to. Uh, these are like the, this is the treatment teams. So, yeah. you know, I, I kind of got to work alongside, learn from them. Some of them, which my psychiatrist and my deployment really pushed me, man, to like, he would teach me shit and he's like, go do it. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? And he's like, you you learn by doing. This is what this is what we need to do. You know, we're in, we're in fucking Iraq. We gotta yeah, yeah. we gotta get shit done, and this is all we have. So, Let's talk about that. So, what what yeah. was the job then when you got to Iraq? Did you immediately go to Abu Ghraib, or how do you integrate oh, into a field setting? So you know, I wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> with my with my senior NCO being out, the C five went around and just like asked everyone who wants to deploy. Huh. So he woke me up and he's like, you know, look, dude, you know, we had a team of like, I don't know how many techs, five or six. He's like, look, dude, we got this deployment opportunity, you know, get a little combat patch, get a little extra pay, you know, get you, get you, get you, get you, uh, prep for that NCO board. Uh, (laughs) 
Um, and he was like, yeah, I, I already knew he was pitching. I kind of knew he was full of shit. I never really liked the guy. He ended up um, pissing hot twice and getting kicked out of the army for weed huh. um, while I was deployed. Not a surprise. So he was kind of a slime bag. Uh, but part of me wanted to go. Yeah. yeah. I think part of it was naivety. I think part of it was also like, I want to do this job like for real. I've been training for fucking three years, you know, like I want to do this job. And then I was like, also, you know, part of the naivety was like, I'm going to be like in a hospital. You know, I'm going to be like, huh. yeah. you know, clearly knowing that this isn't fucking World War One or two, like this is going to be, you know, I don't think I understood until I got orders and I saw Abu Ghraib prison no less than 12 months. And understanding what had been in the news about Abu Ghraib for the past several months with the abuse scandal and just realizing this is in the fucking center of, of Iraq and that there are no, you know, lines. Yeah. There's no sides of this war. It's everyone's fucking, you know, the shit show that it was. And that's when I just got hit with like this. What the fuck am I doing? I was in a relationship. I had to tell her I had to tell my I had to kind of omit the truth to my parents because I was ashamed. I said, I got orders. I didn't want to tell them that I volunteered. But you volunteered, yeah. And then I yeah. cried. I, I, I wrote in a poem in my show yeah. uh, how, you know, I, I, you know, I spent time next to my girlfriend like, what the, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I putting myself in this position unnecessary yeah. to, you know, to go? And then, it, then that's where it kicked in where it was like, yeah, fucking, you know, orders are in. Yeah, yeah. Rounds I gotta, the chamber. I gotta push through. Yeah, and yeah. I was real. I was, I was really, really scared, man. I was going to churches outside of Fort Hood, Texas. <laughs> you know, my my parents are both, you know, like church going folks, yeah. and um, I was just trying to make peace with it, you know, and just this overwhelming fear, um, and then even you know the the my uh, the chaplain with the unit we deployed with was Samoan, uh, super cool guy, but I was chasing his ass around. I was like, I'm trying to find peace, man. I was like on every service. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was really just trying to, you know, center myself and ground myself. And it became like, just fucking get through this, man. It really, being at Abu Ghraib and getting attacked on a regular basis with mortar, small arms fire, mm-hmm. um, RPGs, it was like, I, I, got, I got to a place of acceptance that all I could do is yeah. try to keep myself. Number one, you just got to fucking do your job, right? Then I was like, okay, now I need to just do what I can to keep myself as safe as possible. And the soldiers around me as safe as possible and everything else is out of our fucking control. Yeah. Which is literally how we end the first piece in my show. It's called War Cries and that it was preparing to deploy. And it's my story and Hippolito, who's a, a Marine, yeah, yeah. Uh, telling our different perspectives of me kind of being a little more emotionally <laughs> sensitive <laughs> and him really trying to shove that shit down yeah. as a Marine and kind of, you know, uh, motivate himself yeah. for what he was about to get into. What was your job at Abu Ghraib? Like, how does a mental health specialist, like, where do you fit in the battle rhythm of a prison? Oh, oh. We didn't fit in anywhere. Okay. We went into a warehouse 
to set up shop, right? And this is a full-blown hospital. This is over 200 soldiers. We okay. had fucking nutritionists. We had radiologists. We had every, like everything there, right? We had like ICU units and all that shit in the mash tents yeah. and all that stuff. And they had no space for us, the mental health team, uh. in the warehouse. Uh, we chose to set up shop in the warehouse because the overhead cover. Mortars sure. could and did drop randomly here and there. But it was like the safest spot to be in the prison. Sure. So we set up shop in this prison. <laughs> they had no office space for us. I was like, what the fuck, man? You know, and it was almost like this idea of like, what are you guys going to do? You know? Yeah, right. You know, <laughs> um, we actually partnered up with a CID unit huh. across the, the FOB <clears throat> and they shared their office space. So we had a little office and we, we fucking, we made like these placards, combat stress control, and we set up shop and we, you okay. know, <laughs> we, um, we did like three. We did like three main things. Uh, by the way, it was it was a single psychiatrist, a psychologist, a social worker who was a major. Psychiatrist was a major. The social worker was a lieutenant colonel, actually, woman. And the psychologist was a captain. Um, we kind of divided up the work amongst the you know like a couple of psychiatric nurses, uh, three or four mental health techs, and. We tried to. We had to figure out our job there. By the way, we had to like create it. Yeah, I was gonna say oh, you weren't falling in on anything. There was no existing yeah. mental health. Right. Thing, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We. I. I believe this is correct because Guantanamo was going on, and I'm not just not sure, but I remember how the different specialties in the the medical unit were trying to piece together like a field manual for like detainee medical medical mm. operations in a detainee setting. Yeah. Yeah. And I believe we were a part of that. Uh, and we were just trying to figure out how do we work in this fucking setting? Cause it's ridiculous because the, you know, the Iraqi detainees are uh, brought into the prison. I mean, you know, literally out the back of, yeah. Out the back of military vehicles with sandbags on their head, zip ties on their hands. Who knows where the fuck they're from? Ain't nobody knows, you know. Right. Um, and the prison will fluctuate from a few thousand to like, you know, nine, twelve fucking thousand. Maybe mm. not that many. For some reason, five, six thousand is in my head at a time. And this is just tents, Constantino wire, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Guard towers, MPs, field artillery guys. There were... People that he actually had no experience doing. There was an all Puerto Rican unit, ironically. There. Oh yeah, Puerto Rican National about. Guard. Yeah. Yeah. There's. I. I need to write that down. <laughs> I want to write about that. But uh, there were these, all these units there, and it was like in the midst of war. You know, I was there during the big Fallujah offensive. Mm -hmm. um, you know, different voting things were going on. It was causing chaos throughout the country. Uh, there were. There were, you know, every once in a while they they'd act up, right? The prisoner. <laughs> yeah, sure. They, you know, and I remember a especially chaotic time was when news somehow got back to them that uh, this story that they were flushing Qurans, Qurans at Guantanamo. Yeah. Oh yeah, at Guantanamo. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how the fuck these guys? I don't even hear that. Like, where does that come from? But. Um, our job was like to work with the prisoners. That was the main. So it was like, how the fuck do we do mental health 
another language during war with the enemy. It was fucking ridiculous. To do what? To de-stress mental them? Mental health or care. Like mental health care. Okay. So it's part uh, of the amenity of, of so, showing how we do prisons and like, hey, we're going to make this a better prison because we'll give you some mental health care. <laughs> well, they, wow. I, I right. think no one knew how to use us. So anytime the MPs were having a difficult prisoner or an uh, outburst or someone who just seemed, quote unquote, you know, crazy, they would call us over. And sometimes folks are just being assholes, right? Just being resistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angry. Other times it was like, oh shit, that's catatonic schizophrenia. Holy shit. You know, or. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, just like you would see these mental illnesses yeah. and uh, so many of them culturally, they would uh, justify it. Uh, suicide attempts. That was another one, you know, mental health. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. call, call the mental health team over here. Um, they, they push so much on. Um, on uh religion mm. so it was like oh i'm cursed because i hear voices in my head uh, or you know yeah. yeah like things like that it was all these cultural reference yeah and you know us kind of you know just having this increased knowledge of mental illness we're like no 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 that's <laughs> called a manic episode <laughs> that's bipolar disorder and we were literally giving out meds by the way so it was like wow wow <laughs> We would go around. I guess there's no malpractice suits over in Iraq. So if you get the wrong dose or anything, like no real repercussions anyway, right? Well, that was the thing. You know, giving out meds under the supervision. First, it was the psychiatrist walking around with us. We had a pharmacy. We'd fucking Uh. fill the meds and then go around as a team. Then we started breaking off into like pairs. And then at a certain point, we're walking around these camps. I think there 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 were different levels to the camps, right? Kind of like. Gen, gen pop yeah, all the way up yeah, to like yeah. level five was like solitary and all they, they gotcha. were just fucking caged in like like fucking yeah 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 animals individually and these were like high risk um or high value detainees quote unquote um <clears throat> or people who just needed to separate for whatever reason uh so we would go throughout the camps you know drop our guns off at the mp shack our, our rifles off and walk through the camps and fucking give the medicine to these guys. And and we would talk to them. There was always someone who spoke English, right? Imagine the they were fucking they were religious leaders. They were like, you know, pharmacists and doctors in there, very articulate, you know, folks that and they would help us because oftentimes it's like this guy's fucking suffering. So if you can help us, like, you know, they would try to Wow. So you had no linguists attached to you. No, so they brought Holy in. Uh, they brought in. Uh, we had a few interpreters, uh, untrained in mental health. I mean, untrained. Sure. In, they were just like this. Was like fucking. <laughs> Halfway through the plane, we got we got assigned a, a young dude. I imagine in his twenties, who just was college educated. His parents bought him out of military service under Saddam, and I don't know how he just fucking became a military contractor. Sure, and he just sure. showed up at Abu Ghraib prison. And he was, it was so funny because he just had no understanding of mental health at all. So like we talked to someone like, what's wrong? What's going on? He's like, he's full of shit. And we're like, no, it's not helpful, dude. That's not helpful. They're <laughs> 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 we trying to get information here. So we just used whoever we could. We, yeah. we, we translated questionnaires into, you know, Arabic and we'd either give it to them. We would learn phrases, you know, like yeah. nefsia. Sure. I remember nefsia means like mental, mental health problems or something um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
But we would be there. Okay, I remember the sites now. The site was in processing. So right off the fucking truck. Okay. You know, there'd be a yeah. stack of AKs in the fucking. I remember seeing that all the time. Just being like, holy shit, this is fucking crazy. And they would just put them all in and in process them, give them a fucking number and put them out in the yard, put them out in the prison. And it was pre, pre, uh, what's it called? Not pre, uh, I can't remember the term. Like pedigree? Pre-trial confinement. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh So they'd be waiting there and there were guys that were there. Some claimed they were abused during, you know, uh, late December, early January. I don't remember exactly when the abuse scandal happened. But our unit was sent there to help clean up the image, by the way. Our motto was sure. restoring America's honor. Yep. It was there yep. to say, look, we're taking, look, world, we're taking care of these guys. Sure, right? sure, sure, sure. So it was there to kind of clean up the mess of the abuse scandal. Gotcha. They were all gone. There were just a few detainees who claimed they were, I, I, I don't really remember if I pulled their files and found out if any of them were actually abused during that. Right. All that stuff at what they called the hard site, yeah. which was kind of a lockdown facility in the prison, which at when I, when we showed up, it was run by civilian contractors and they were convicted Iraqi criminals. Uh, so they weren't folks captured in, you know, in this, in, in the fighting, in the war. Mm. Um, but it was, it was run by them. And we actually, we went in there we, we kind of walked around and kind of toured in a very mm. weird way, but yeah. I actually just, I wanted to see it. It was like this yeah. area that was just like locked down, closed off. And I was like, what the fuck is going on over yeah, there? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, was, what was the deployment meaning to you? Um, do you? Were you just in survival mode, like at level 10, like just ramped up the whole time? Or did you, were you able to kind of assess like what its impact was on you at the time? I mean, obviously we'll get to Amal and, and how you kind of process some of the stuff after, but, right. but it, dur- during the experience, were you, uh, you, what was going through your mind? What was it, What did this mean for you? Hmm. I think two things happened. I'm just going to round it off to the midway through the midway point of my deployment where it felt like, I was getting good at the job. I was getting competent at this job in this weird ass environment, doing this crazy work. I felt like my skills were kind of getting better. You know, my ability to pull information, to work with folks, because we not only work with the detainees, we had a combat stress office. Mm. You know, we, we do debriefings for the MPs. We, you know, we would do reintegration briefings that happened later towards as we were prepping to get back home to talk to folks about trauma and fucking, sure. you know. Sure. Um, but we, I, I was seeing folks in the office. We were making appointments. Mm. We had open hours, open door. People yeah. walk in, drop their gear, just fucking vent and leave. Mm. Sometimes once, sometimes, you know, several folks were coming back with Dear John, you know. Uh, mm. well, I, one soldier, I'll just say, uh, <clears throat> he came back with like divorce paperwork, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Other folks are finding out about their, you know, spouses cheating on them via social media. Um, we had a Marine take his life while we were there. You know, shit was going on, man. I, you know, it, I really learned a lot about what it does, what prolonged stress and fear and trauma can do to fucking people. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like that was a bit heartbreaking. And I also say in my show that my job was to help other people get through their time at Abu Ghraib while getting through it myself. 
So I was fucking there with them all. Yeah, you know, right. I'm like talking to right. folks. I'm like, I'll see you in the defect later. Right, right, right. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I, my girlfriend at the time back and forth had cheated on me and we broke up. Ironically, the day I got promoted, it's very weird. Wow. How life works. I'm yeah. screaming at her at the fucking phone center, which I used to mock all the guys that were having those fits of rage at their partners. Yeah. Um, you fucking bitch, ah! you know, for whatever reason, emptying bank accounts, cheating on them, leaving them. And that day I walked out and my friend looked at me and I was like, oh shit, I was that dude. Today. I'm that guy. Yeah. Like, yeah. That guy. Um, so I was dealing with it all myself. Yeah. Man, and um, uh, it really was like, I just need to survive. Just yeah. Put your head down and do the work. Just get through the shit with your limbs and your life. What was the flight back like for you? Do you remember? Was there a sense oh, of man. relief? Were you like, I'm fucking done with this? Were you like, okay, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting my thoughts on ice until I have time to process? Where, where was your head at when you came back? <clears throat> I, I'd like to share one big thing that has stayed with me, which we totally talk a lot about in our show, <clears throat> was just how fucked up war is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I got to have a front, fucking front row seat into kind of the moral injury of it all mm-hmm. and the helplessness that comes with it. And, you know, I just really, I went to family visitation and I got to see women and children visiting their, you know, their loved ones. And it just, it just fucked me up on a whole different level. It mm-hmm. made me question what I was doing, you know, what my role in this conflict, the United States role in, in this war. and. It, it just made me sad just as a fucking human, you know, and you know how prison is, right? Everybody's innocent. Who knows yeah, what right. these people were guilty or, uh, or charged with. Um, but the humanity of it all was in my fucking face. I couldn't avoid it. And it broke my heart. And a fellow soldier told me like it was just wearing on her at this one point, just too much, man. Marines were getting killed on, 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 on combat missions. So we're dealing with that. And then we're dealing with, these prisoners, you know, because our job is to fucking humanize people. Yeah. Right. Uh, like I'm trying to think of a line from the show where I mentioned that, but um, it was like, I couldn't do that. So it was like, this isn't a fucking, you know, enemy combatant, potential enemy combatant, who knows, right? Terror. Suspected of terrorist activity is what they all kind of had as, yeah. as their charges. Um, but this is Muhammad who has, you know, three kids. Mm. I got to know people on a very personal yeah. level, yeah. which leads to the, and this is a clinical term, fucked upness of it all. <laughs> <laughs> it was yeah. like, oh yeah. man, just the human, the human yep. suffering on all sides. Yeah. Really, really got to me. And as I left that deployment, um, there was totally the sense of relief. And I remember flying out on CH-47s and just feeling like this fucking Vietnam vibe where I'm watching mm. the prison out the back of the Chinook yeah, as we, we yeah. get up and we fucking go, go to um, Baghdad International Airport and, and, and get the fuck out of there. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know. I just in retrospect, there was totally relief. There was deep sadness. Uh, 
yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know what else to say about leaving that experience. There was also gratitude that I just got through it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, when did you start unpacking that experience? When did you start going, Hey, I need to mine this. I need to sort through this. So the last time I wrote was literally like, you know, my senior year in high school. Yeah. So I made up my mind. I'm going to go to Florida. I'm going to go to Florida International University. I'm going to study occupational therapy. Seems mm. like a cool job. Pays mm. pretty well. I visited Florida before I went on active duty and I was like, I fucking love this place. So I planned on coming down. And as soon as I got out, I drove straight to Florida. My dad was living near Tampa at the time. So I went straight to his house, stayed there for six months, slept on a twin bed with my siblings, like 10 years younger than me. <laughs> It was weird, but I needed that little time to kind of decompress. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know the route I'm going, but I know that my education is going to be, it has to be a part of it. You know, whatever I do. So I was like, I'm going to go to, I'm going to, I made a plan. By the end of 2007, I was working in the VA as a mental health tech. <laughs> uh. And I actually never went to FIU. Uh, huh. I was able to get my bachelor's and master's in psychology at a small private college in Miami. And I started going to writing workshops. So. Why? Why did you say, did you know you wanted to unpack these experiences and that was how you're going to do it? Okay. hundred percent. I just started. I don't know. I just wanted to get back to writing. So I started going to all these poetry workshops and Uh you know, uh, there's a pretty, pretty big literary community actually in South Florida. Sure. So I'm doing these writing workshops with like, you know, Elizabeth Alexander, who's like the president of the Mellon Foundation right now. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, Robert Pinsky. Is that his name? Robert Pinsky. Uh, you know, this awesome poet, Lee Young Lee out of Chicago. I'm doing these workshops, these like amazing literary wow. folks. Um, and just trying to add to the toolbox and just writing. Now, what happened is I was writing. <laughs> People are writing about their fucking dogs and their day at the beach. And I'm like, <laughs> day, day one of Iraq. <laughs> and I'm like, this yeah, is not. Yeah. They're like, oh, my God, this is fucking intense. Yeah. And, you know, they would be like, are you OK? Like, You should go get therapy. And I'm like, no, I'm perfectly fine. I'm. I'm just trying to tell yeah. some of these stories that I think, you know, I need to get out of me and I want to share with people. Um, and then there was a writing workshop opportunity. Uh, there was a show called Bass Track Live from New York City. It's avant-garde ar- art. I think her name is Annie Berger. Okay. Brought this show, this multimedia production, had a fucking like a live band. And it had a, uh, an actor kind of narrate his story of going to war, coming home. And reintegr- reintegration. Um, this college wanted to couple this touring production that they booked to present with a writing workshop for vets. Gotcha. They heard they heard I did an open mic at the Miami VA where I was working in in a rehab program with vets as a, just a tech while I was going to school. Yeah, and I hosted this event. And I brought a poetry organization, Oh Miami. I invited them to the event and. They brought poets from out of state and they were handing out fucking poetry books and I printed poems and I was giving them the veterans. I'm like, this has, this has a bunch of F-bombs. You're going to love it. Don't worry about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. You know, and I'm, I'm handing yeah. out poetry. Um, it was a great event. It was like one of the biggest events, like, you know, at that time. So they heard yeah. about that and brought me in. They go, look, you have a mental health background. You're into writing. Help us find folks and be a part of this workshop too. We want you to be. And that was my first 
dive into the arts. And we did a four-month workshop. My list of 20 or so people dwindled quickly yeah, sure. to a handful because people are like, oh, I have class. I'm not ready to do that. Sorry, I'm not really – I don't really want to do that. Bah, 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 bah. And one was a relative, <laughs> a cousin of no. mine who served as a mortuary affairs specialist in the army for a few years. And then there were two Marines and we were all, you know, we were all men of color. Mm-hmm. I thought I found that interesting. We all kind of joined for the same reasons. That was another link. And then the facilitator was this theater artist, Teo Castellanos, who ran a hip hop Back to hip hop, full circle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hip hop theater company for a decade, traveling the world. Oh. Mentor to Terrell McCraney, uh, a blue light fame, and everything else he's doing is, you know, uh, David makes man on the Open Network uh, on her own. He he's done amazing shit. He mentored that young man who's so, and I he was scared to work with vets. He was like, look, and he was a, a Miami raised Puerto Rican, by the way. So now we find this room, you know, where we we have these shared lived experiences before, during, and after the war. And I met those two Marines doing volunteer work. We met through the Mission Continues Fellowship. So you brought them into the writing group after meeting them there. Yeah, I heard they like to write. We're all fucking, you know, trying to find peace in our fucking souls. We're doing a lot of volunteer work. Yeah. And, you know, we just had these things in common. I'm like, look, guys, here's an opportunity to do some writing. You down? Sure. Sure. So we met for four months with Teo, who also coached a youth slam team huh. from Miami for nearly a decade, uh, who's made a career of working with kind of non-professionally trained mm. folks. Got you. Yeah. And we not only collected on a personal level, but he really appreciated our stories and wanted to help us share them. So a writing workshop quickly turned into why don't we perform this shit? And we were like, what? I was like, look, dude, I don't I love spoken word. Love it. I don't know anything about that. I'm a real I'm pretty shy. You know, I don't know if I can memorize this shit. That was my a big worry. And he was like, if you trust me, you know, um, to be vulnerable and to push ourselves, whether it's in the writing or physically with the performance, we're you know, this work is going to go from here to here, you know, like, you know, we're going to be able to really not, not just entertain folks, but craft beautiful stories, mm-hmm. you know, um, <clears throat> and we started doing that. We started workshopping stories, you know, oh, he wrote a piece about that. Wait a second. Hippolito and Anthony, Hippolito was firing on Abu Ghraib from miles away. While you were inside Abu Ghraib. Wow. This is a true wow. story. Wow. On April 4th, to, it's literally called the Battle of Abu Ghraib on like Wikipedia. Pretty, pretty accurate. It was a really bad attack on the prison. Um, we just started finding all of these intersections in our lived experiences. Uh, and we just started workshopping, just writing. And every time he fucking opened up about that, that relationship ending or, you know, those fears. We, you know, really just, we created, we created a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. We cried. We laughed. I mean, literally, you know, I know it sounds yeah. kind of cheesy, 
But, <laughs> you know, we yeah. got stuck. We got pushed. Yeah. And we decided to do this 45-minute performance. Not It was going to be an informal reading at the Betsy Hotel in South Beach, actually, hmm. in a lounge. <laughs> Jesus. And he brought along a fucking hip-hop DJ uh, who incorporated music. We're playing bombs over Baghdad and shit. Yeah. And we decided to tell this 45-minute piece about our lives before, during, and after the military. And we called it Conscience Under Fire. And while in D.C., as we sworn in at the World War II Memorial for Mission Continues that previous year, one of the founding members, actually not in the company anymore, he said, look at us, man. We all have, like, long hair, wearing flip-flops, you know, doing some fucking community work. We're combat veterans. and We're a bunch of combat hippies. And we just took that name. We, took, we adopted that name. And, you know, not only as a tribute to Vietnam veterans who returned, you know, who, who helped, you know, create the vet centers in the yeah. VA system. Sure. You know, who helped, who helped get VA as a clinical diagnosis so that we can get treatment. Um, and also led, you know, the, the pro-peace movements after the war that really shed light on how fucked up war is. Um, and, you know, we've highlighted, especially in our recent production, the impact of war on everyone involved. Sure. You know, even sure. the people living in these countries that get internally displaced or forced yeah. to become refugees, you know, it broke my heart. And it was no surprise that plane loads of Afghanis were flying over to the United States I found how ironic that was to me, you know, that we went over there, we brought war to the, you know, we were involved in conflict in this country. And now these very people are, are coming into ours. Just, just, you know, just kind of the moral and ethical dilemmas of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I think we just wanted to humanize our experiences and, and, you know, and, 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 and those of everyone involved. So, yeah. You know, we started telling these stories, you know, all of our, all of our fathers are in the military, you know? Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so sorry, it was, it was the conscience under fire was your first yes. show. And then was Amal the second show? Yes. Yes. That was okay. in 2015, in okay. April, 2015. We, wow. we, you know, we made these fucking shirts, uh, our shirts, uh, we adopted the, the, the term post-traumatic growth. Huh. And we just, we, we, we just decided as a group, you know, we're going to tell some hard hitting raw in your face, you know, um, stories from our lives, our perspectives. Um, but the, the goal is not just to horrify people. You know, we don't want to just no, tell right. war stories. It's kind of like, this is our journey. This is where it's got us, whether good or bad. And, you know, understanding with our director being a Zen Buddhist priest, literally, actually, uh, that suffering is a human condition. Yeah. And that, Community needs is an important part of the healing process and that we can use the arts to shed light on these issues, to tell our stories and that, you know, in the storytelling, that's how we bring people together, you know, and, and, and that led into a commissioning of our new piece, which was an amazing honor, including a grant from the Knight Foundation, huge grant from the Knight Foundation. And we found ourselves celebrating. They were like, holy shit, that's a big we felt a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. But we got commissioned to tell the story about how war impacts really everyone, 
And we called the show Amal. We call it Amal, which is Arabic for hope. And, you know, and our, our, our in-house Zen Buddhist told us, you know, we want to bring folks on a journey where we're going to talk about these universal themes of pain and suffering and loss and grief. But we also want to pull, we want to pull from those experiences, themes and stories and, and intersections of, of hope and resilience and strength, you know, and survival. Yeah. You know, that we can, we all go through shit that changes us. It's, it's, not entirely for the bad, you know, that's what yeah. post-traumatic growth yeah. is. How do we pull from, you know, from these experiences? And um, I tell you, man, the performance shit, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, it's a very different, it's so visceral. Yeah. <clears throat> it's very different than just reading a poem on paper. Yeah. Yeah. And the work is, is so a part of me, like, you know, COVID really put a major halt to our work. We were we were on a tour, man. We played at La Mama Experimental. Oh, theater, yeah. Sure. January 2020. Huh. We fucking, we performed in, in, we went to San Jose. We performed in Denver. We, you know, we were doing a little tour. Yeah. We performed in Milwaukee. And then stop. Hard stop. And, you know, we're still right now. We were fortunate, gratefully, and happy to go to uh, Chicago for a week of shows last September. Um, and then in November, we went to uh, a college in North Jersey uh, just to do one one off one off show. Yeah. And um, and the work is so important to me. It's way more than just telling some you know just poetry and right. It's, right. I feel like it's community work. You know, I my director mm. says his artistic practice and his life. You know those those things aren't separate identities it's it's one and the same you know what are you doing now with it do you still tinker with the show are you working on a new thing do you find yourself writing just for yourself <clears throat> every day like what's your battle rhythm artistically now um right now i'm reaching out far and wide part mm -hmm. of why i connected with you guys yeah yeah uh you know, we're really, we're really out here in South Florida. <laughs> Might as well be an island. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, we performed locally those early years. I mean, several colleges, small theaters. What we've really found support and, and, and this feeling of community has been going outside of Florida. Yeah. You know? Uh, doing writing workshops with organizations, um, Chicago, New York, you know, Denver, these different cities, um, and connecting just with other veteran artists. It's so inspiring to me, yeah. you know, and yeah. it's really encouraging and motivating because sometimes you feel like you're working, you know, in this yeah. bubble. Absolutely. Uh, but I know how hard we worked on this and I'm so proud of it. Um, and I feel like, you know, that's just kind of my driving force to continue reaching out and connecting and say, hey, look, this is what we're doing down here. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And do you have more in you, though? Do you have more shows in you, do you think? or Because <laughs> I, I get yeah. that you're like still yeah. in this one, but are you like, right. is there a part of you that's going, hey, <clears throat> when we've exhausted this, I got I got another thing coming for y'all and, and you're building yeah. something else. Out. <clears throat> okay, well, I'll speak for myself. <laughs> the company as the kind of the ed and you know i'm yeah. a writer and performer 
this has opened up a whole new world world for me. Yeah. You know, the last few years, I've been a, a trauma therapist at a private rehab facility in Deerfield Beach, uh, at uh, a vet center. I worked mm. uh, from 2020 to 2021 um, as a readjustment counselor, and this is whew, high trauma work, man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. MST survivors, war veterans of all eras, families. Um, it's really intense fucking work. And, you know, I've only been licensed since 2018. And mm. my, one of my, not my current therapist previous was like, geez, dude, you like really jumped into the deep end here. Yeah. <laughs> like, you like doing yeah. like hardcore. I was working with police officers and EMTs during COVID and 2020, you know, those national you yeah. know, unrest yeah. and protests yeah. around the country. Um, and I started burning out <clears throat> and there was no, I wasn't writing. I wasn't writing. I felt like Comet Hippies was like, you know, on hold in the back of the closet. Yeah. yeah. And I was just going to work every day. And, you know, COVID fucked everything up. So I of course. feel in just kind of absorbing yeah. all these stories, all these conversations, all this information and coming home and it just triggering shit in, in me. And I started burning out and I, I actually... I think I was looking for an opportunity. I was trying to reach for 12 months at the vet center before I made a move. And when, as soon as my director like pushed back against the gig we did in Jersey, she was like, well, you know, you know, it seems like you're, you're leaving. I was like, dude, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't taken any time off the whole year. I'm leaving for four days to go perform. If you're not okay with that, you know, this shit ain't going to work out for me. I think I was really looking for an out. I I felt really, It felt like a very negative work environment, I'll just say. Mm. Not a lot of support. Morale was low. Everyone's fucking burnt out. And it just wasn't a good setting for me. So what I started doing, honestly, this year, after taking some time off, going to an intensive outpatient veteran program at Emory University for two Mm. weeks, um, and continuing therapy, I'm doing fucking neurofeedback right now. (laughs) And I'm just trying to really do some self-care because- I want to take this and continue to use it not just to perform, but like use the arts to, you know, encourage people to tell their stories, you know, to, you know, I, I, I'm leaning into, you know, becoming more of a teaching artist. Uh, I got a fellowship from the Kennedy center, you know, uh, 2020 as a citizen artist fellow, um, I'll be attending uh, the National Association for Latino Arts and Cultures, NALAC. Uh, I just got a fellowship with them. I'm going to San Antonio in a couple of weeks to learn about being a Latino in the arts community and how to be a leader in in that role. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm I'm facilitating a few workshops, one with a a poetry organization in Miami uh, with young adult artists. I'm a mentor in the program. I just finished a series with Network of Ensemble Theaters, six-month mm. workshop series on uh, BIPOC and LGBTQ artists from around the country, mm-hmm. and just trying to kind of create this support network. Um, and you know, I think it's been it's been a challenge for artists of all disciplines over the last couple of years. Sure, um, I love. I'm so grateful for what the performance work. The, the platform has given me an avenue and a, you know, uh, yeah. other ways to work in this community. Um, and I don't know if I'm going to go back to clinical work. 
I haven't thus far. That's interesting. Well, let me make sure I that's get this right. That's part of the shift for me. So, but I mean, this is like, I mean, first off, that's awesome about all the grants and all the feedback you're getting and all that support. But that's really on the basis of two shows, right? Right. That's right. fucking incredible. That's fucking incredible. That and doing- I mean, seriously, that that's, I mean, yeah. how do you, how can you not feel awesome about that? You know, I mean, that's really saying something. Does yeah. that inspire you to kind of get up and get writing and like, and keep churning stuff out? Yes. Um, yeah. It does. It's such a hard process. I was up, I was up extremely late last night, actually writing, but for a grant, mm. for a new project idea, you know, um, Locally, I'm applying for a county grant to kind of create a performance piece that I would help. You know, I want to bring in the the, the company, mm-hmm. and you know, we just had this idea a year or two ago about a post-war cleansing ritual, mm-hmm. and how historically, specifically in Native and Indigenous cultures, when warriors return home, mm-hmm. that process of being welcomed, embraced, and honored back into society. I live two miles from the ocean, you know, uh, you know, you know what the healing properties of, of water and the ocean, you know, is all about. Um, we just kind of want to pay honor and tribute to kind of that, that experience and create a piece around it. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and so that's just an idea. That's I have cool. Right now. So that's I'm, cool. I'm, I'm actively thinking and creating and we're, we're literally just in the last month reconvening and saying, where do we take this now? Got you. Um, we have Let's, a potential. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Go ahead. No, no. Finish your thought. Cause I, I want you to be able to plug this um, stuff so people know what you're up to. Oh yeah. yeah. I, um, I'm, I'm looking at kind of how to leverage both sides of it. You know, yeah. like even if say I don't do clinical work anymore, I've just been thinking hard over the last few months. How do I continue to use my education, yeah. my experience, you know, what I've learned along the way um, to, to push the work forward, to create, to, you know, and, yeah. and to share that with others. Let me, can I give you uh, my take on Amal um, watching Absolutely. it? And thank you for sending it to me. Um, for those, for Thank everybody you for watching listening. It. You watch the show? You Are you kidding? It? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, and, and, um, you know, when Anthony reached out to me and I was, uh, uh, you know, I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, this is fucking interesting. And I was like, dude, can I see the whole show? And he sends me the link. And, uh, and I watched it. Um, and I love the multimedia. I think what you guys do is really awesome and so striking and so arresting. I want to ask you about, um, I guess, my biggest question is the tactical or maybe it's a strategic decision to be polemic with it. Um, to, I was, I was interested at the end, the shouts out to AOC, Sonia Sotomayor and all that. What was the decision-making with that? And I say that as somebody that I've always telling um, people when they work with me, I'm like, dude, Leave your politics out because you're going to piss off some people and everybody's on this ride with you. But now they're going to go, oh, great. Red, blue. Oh, I can play this game. And then you're like, oh, fuck. Now I lost you. You're not listening anymore. So I just want. So your piece cannot not be political, I think. 
right? Because the way that you guys phrase it right off the bat, you're making a political case. But talk about a little bit about that decision making and about how you straddle the line to bring people along, but then kind of show your hand also and where where that line is drawn, what your thinking was behind that. Because that was interesting to me that you guys actually went there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, we, what well, one part of it is part of this work was research into Puerto Rican military history. You know, we stand now as an all Puerto Rican theater yeah. company from our director to the three performers. And, you know, we just kind of dug into, you know, from, from Puerto Ricans being drafted into world war one in 1918 to, uh, you know, these uprisings across the island in 1950, that there's been this complicated relationship with Puerto Rico and the United States. And then to see, you know, in this production, first, second, and third generation, um, uh, you know, Americans, as mm. you could say, or Puerto Rican Americans, you know, um, those perspectives of, you know, what does... I feel like we, we, we really, we try to dive into, you know, what does, what does patriotism mean? Mm. You know, um, you know, what, you know, what does service mean, you know, and other conflicts in that specifically for people that come from U.S. territories or colonies, as they've been historically known as, um, because there's this large, prideful community of um, people of all walks of life, right? Whether it's Hawaii, Guam, Philippines, mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, that serve, you know, and, and in some respects, you know, I went to the Museum of the American Indian in D.C. recently, and, you know, it's like this opportunity to exercise your warrior spirit, Yeah, you know, yeah. This, this, this opportunity to kind of rep your people, you know, <laughs> yeah. pridefully. Yeah. Um, and then comes military tradition, right? My dad served, my grandpa served, my, his father served, his brother served, right? Which, which, which is also part of it. Um, but we wanted to shed light on, you know, some of these issues and really just raw and honest and unabashedly ourselves that, you know, as I sat with Iraqis time after time, they would speak to me in Arabic. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Don't you see? <laughs> It says Torres, U.S. Army, and they would apologize and say, you kind of look like us. And that was disturbing in a way. Um, and this idea of the enemy me being kind of the, 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 you know, the, the wild savage, you know, that's, you know, also historically been kind of a label given to, you know, basically anyone, you know, that's the, uh, of, of the other side, it's a way to dehumanize, right? Um, it's it's a way to do that. It, it is. I mean, it is a way there's definitely, I think there's a, I think there's a marriage, an unholy marriage, you might even say between dehumanization, name calling, what have you, but then also the really sick shit where you're like, oh yeah, we don't do that. Yeah, no, there's, there's a line in the sand. I think that's what, um, for me, like when we're talking, like, I love the stories that you guys told in there. I thought it was done. You and Hippolito were like telling it was, it was fun. And it was funny 
that's also a fucking great piece of it is I was like, I wasn't expecting the, at the moments to laugh when I did. I was like, oh, man, no, it's great. And it's not just great. It's necessary, too. And it's and because I think, um, yeah, I think it's disarming. I think it's insightful. Um, Yeah, I was there was a part of me that wanted to. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the best way to say this or the best way to frame my saying this. There was a part of me that wanted to jump up like when you said. Hey, uh, I'm brown, just like these people over here were brown. And I wanted to go, bro, but you're not them. You're not. And it's not about the skin color. It's about so much more. And that, and that, holy shit, man. I mean, like, like, I mean, first off, fuck, I mean, the fucking Iranians over there doing worse shit to brown people than we are. We're at least there to try to help. But then I was like, oh, but dude, you know, right? And that, that was a part of me that was like, I wanted to hug you, man. I wanted to hug both you guys and go, motherfucker, you know I would die for you guys because you're us. And skin color or whatever, that's fucking secondary, man. And you know that. And then when I see, and then, and I was like, that, that part of me, I was just like, I felt like I was losing brothers. That's just how it hit me. Cause I was like, Oh no, man, I want you guys to be in. I want, I mean, <laughs> to use the common term, I want you guys to be included. I'm like, no, 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 no fucking no. You're, you're with me, man. You're here. And that, and, um, that was the, that, so that, that one piece there and then the rest of it, I'm a with you, I'm on the ride. And then at the end, and it's funny cause I've had the same conversation with guys on the other side of the political aisle where they're like, and this is why Trump's right. And I'm like, Oh God, no dude, fucking stop line. Like, and I was like, no dude, like once you put the label on it, I was like, Oh fuck. No, because then now, now we're back to that. Now we're back to an MSNBC Fox thing as opposed to like the human thing. That was my feedback from it. I'm saying that as a fan, I'm saying that as somebody that was, I was watching it and I'm just like, this has got, it is like to what you were saying, it's more than spoken word. It's spoken word on fucking steroids and a spoken word in the most, like, I, I mean, we've done a, a now with the festival that we just did, like we've had a lot of spoken word stuff and figuring out a theatrical way to bring spoken word up. Multimedia is the answer. And you guys fucking crushed it. I love the fucking music. I love the fucking head banging in between. I love the light show. I love the theater in the round. There's so many great theatrical devices. And I'm sure that was you and tail like, and Hippolito, but I mean, all you guys working together to figure that out and you see the craft there. There's so much cool shit, but anyway, that was my reaction. I, I thought it was a great show. There were just those things. I was like, Oh fuck. Like for me, one for my heart, like hurt. Cause I was like, Oh no, fuck. Fuck no 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 no! I don't want to see that. I want to. I want to bring. I and I not. I don't want to see you say it. I mean, you you say whatever you believe, but it was more just like I wanted to make it right. And then um, the flip side of it, and I was like, oh shit, wait, no, hold on. Now we gotta. Now there's like a third objective thing. But I felt like the strongest pieces for me were when you open up and you guys are sharing your stories. Then it's like, fuck yeah, I'm here for it. Like that's awesome. Like now we're on this ride. I don't know. That was my feedback. But I mean, I'm saying that again, as a fan, as somebody that when I saw that, I was like, this is the next level. 
this is the next level of performance and spoken word. And this is work that, um, that I do look at veterans, like, especially as family, you know, and I look and I go, oh shit, this is when, when we talk about at vet rep, like our mission being to bring vets more into pop culture and that veterans are going to have those significant emotional events that are going to make something special artistically. I was like, that's that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm saying this is a fan. And of course I'm bringing this up right at the fucking end when you're got it, when you got to run. So I hate to be a dick and do that to you. But anyway, I want, I want to share that I with really you. Appreciate and I'm, I'm saying this, I hope, I hope you saying that seeing the compliment in here, cause I'm, I'm a fan of the work and I really loved it a lot. Um, but yeah, that, that was how it struck me for what yeah, it's worth. Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate it. Um, it, you know, one thing I feel is kind of universal is, um, the lived experience of being, you know, of, of, uh, a different skin tone, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's undeniably rooted in our country's history. Um, uh, and, you know, um, and also in our, just our, our, you know, our personal lived experiences. I mean, you know, racism, Absolutely. discrimination, clearly, you know, uh, um, is, you know, a, a, a part of this, you know, it's also kind of the thing about the, the end of the show is kind of like, where do we pull hope from when we feel, when we feel hopeless, right? And I've always been scared to say anything because I thought, oh man, if I say anything that goes against kind of the typical status quo that, um, you know, I'm going to like ostracize myself, you know, I, I'm not going to be accepted or yeah, kind of yeah. in fear, in fear. And what happens if we remove that and, you know, just keep it as raw and honest and real as possible, understanding that, you know, it's not, it's not, everything's not going to click with everyone. That's okay. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and like what you said about like, what, what is it that brings folks together? Right. Like that, that kind of tie in of like, we need to lean on hope, not in a very, not in a superficial pop culture way or whatever, yeah, yeah, but yeah. in this way yeah. of like, how do we, you know, what, it, what does it mean? You know, what does, what does, how does it become actionable steps? Yeah. No. Well, and I don't know. We try to lean on some of that. No. And I think, I think the narrative, I think you're absolutely right. The narrative of the piece needs to end on a hopeful note. Yeah. I think I was wondering, I, I'm always leery of attaching it to a person. I mean, forget about the politics involved because then it's like, oh, wait, now if I want to honor your story or Hippolito's story, now I have to associate that with an external third person. And I'm like, wait, 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 no, I'll believe in you guys because that's what's here. That's what's speaking. But then it was like, oh, wait, now we're going to like, and I, and I think it's hard to put hope in a person outside as opposed to people writ large, like, okay, Hey, wait, what's in here amongst all of us that's binding us. Mm-hmm. I think that was, it seemed, and, and this is, this is such a dick move on my part. Cause I'm, I'm ambushing you with this at the very fucking end. I feel like a fucking all asshole good. for waiting this <laughs> it's long, all good. It's um, good. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was like, if, if I, had, if I had been part of that creative process, I'd have been like, Hey, what is it among you guys? Like I want, I would have wanted to see that. Um, 
because I, I love wanted that, to stand way. up and cheer. You know, I really wanted to cheer yeah. at the end. Um, yeah, it, it, but it's, it is, it's, um, and I think you're right with the skin color thing. Yeah, that's right. The lived experience of different skin colors. I think one of the things though, is that that's true everywhere. I think sometimes we're solipsistic about America and we're like, oh, America's got this. So is everybody who's, who's done it right. <laughs> you know, whether there's a hundred percent fail rate there. So what, so the moral of the story to me is like, okay, well then let's take that as a given in every environment. And then we're, you know, cause I think you're right. You don't want to just lean on the status quo, but also I think it's fair for artists to ask questions and not necessarily feel obligated to have answers, you know, that it's like, Hey, it's enough to ask the question, you know, and then we can, you know, the people can take that and noodle with that on their own in whatever way they see fit. But dude, I know we're pushing on time. So let me just reiterate. It's a fucking great piece of work. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show and talk it up because people should know about it and should know about you guys and what you guys are doing. And I think to your point before, I think a lot of people are going to get inspired by what you're doing. I think that's a, there's a force multiplier artistically in what you're doing um, that I think is worthwhile and noteworthy. And um, I, I just appreciate having the chance to talk, man. It's, it's, it's been a blast. I should have probably gone. This guy's going to have a lot to say. Let's make sure he has no conflicts two hours after we start. But um, <laughs> it, it meant a lot, man. It meant a lot to talk about, talk it through. Um, thank you so much. This was, it was really cool to kind of, yeah, kind of just dive into all that's led up to where I am and, you know, and then now what, right from here. Yeah. Forward, you know, yeah. How do I, that's, I'm constantly thinking about that, right? How do we take this and, you know, take this as a platform to do more, to do other things. And yeah. um, also to just kind of promote this idea of like, we should all be telling our story. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's, right. that's a really, really fun part of the work. So Dude, thank you. Um, let's do this again. Let's do this again. If you don't mind at some point, like especially as you guys have more stuff coming, um, we'll be in touch too. But this is, uh, this has been great, brother. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for your time. This was awesome. That was the savage wonder of Anthony Torres. Man, that was fun. I had a really good time talking to him. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, I know Anthony spent most of his life upstate, but uh, I don't know. To me, I, I see too much New Yorican in him. That made me both happy and nostalgic, wistful for the Chris Meyer of the 1990s that <laughs> a bunch of New Yorican friends uh, causing mischief and mayhem. Anyway. Uh, neither here nor there. Uh, just a great conversation, though. Really enjoyed it. Hey, it, whatever platform you're on, whatever platform you're listening to this show on, scroll up, scroll down. You'll see all the links for the Combat Hippies. Um, I would definitely recommend following them at the bare minimum so you can find out where their shows are, when they're performing. I think it behooves everyone to see this show. Um, if you're just a regular audience member and want to see a badass show, by all means do. If you're a veteran artist, you definitely want to see the show because um, I think there's a lot that any veteran in the arts would be inspired by. And if you do spoken word, you definitely should see the show because I think they're um, doing some very cool things with the medium. And I should say this. I mean, Anthony is uh, maybe I should have led with this up front in the intro, but Anthony is definitely the most political artist we've had on the show yet. And by that, I mean he is the one whose artwork is most publicly political uh, up to this point. 
So, uh, you know, in these, you know, troubled times where we get offended, just walking out the door, I get it. I get if you want to opt out, I get if you don't want to do the political thing, or I get if you want to vet the politics before you know whether or not you are going to spend your hard-earned time and money and effort to uh, partake. That said, I I just want to reiterate something I've said before on the show, the crucial need, I think, of the country for tolerance, which is different, I should say, than endorsement. And I think a lot of times we, we confuse endorsement with tolerance. I think a lot of people demand endorsement and call it tolerance um, and believe that you're not tolerant if you don't endorse what they believe. And I think that's incredibly deceptive and manipulative and wrong. But tolerance is a real virtue. And I think the virtue of tolerance is that you are tolerating things that you do not agree with. There's no virtue or nobility in being tolerant only of things you agree with. That's not tolerance. That's, in fact, intolerance because you cannot stomach something that you don't agree with 100%. So I think having the ability to uh, enjoy and appreciate a piece of art, even while not 100% agreeing with it, is um, a good, righteous, virtuous act and um, and does not require your endorsement. That you, you certainly can be as stubborn as you want and go, nope, got it. I appreciate what they do, but uh, I don't agree with them, but I still can appreciate various aspects of what they did. And I think that's all good and healthy. And, and to be honest, I think it's stimulating. I, I think it's, um, if you're not rubbing shoulders with people that don't see the world exactly the same way you do, uh, I think that's calcifying. I think that's, um, that brings a static mentality. So I think you'd be creatively inspiring and, um, productive and, uh, yeah, be good anyway. So that's a long way of saying, if you have a chance to see combat hippies, do not let your politics or anyone's politics stop you from enjoying a piece of art, uh, even if you can't, even if you don't 100% agree with it. So check out their links. Um, and if you all agree with their politics, then God bless, then you're going to have a great time anyway. But um, especially if you don't, I think there's an awful lot to be gained from what they are doing. Okay. Um, and I also can't wait to have Anthony back on the show. Uh, yeah, I'm really, I very intrigued by some of the possibilities of what combat hippies are doing. Anyway, uh, sorry, I went down my own internal rabbit hole there with some thoughts inspired from our conversation. So uh, outside of that, things that you guys should know, uh, vet rep is busy. We're doing a lot of stuff. I'm recording this episode far enough in advance that I'm not a hundred percent sure what the hell it is we are doing when you're listening to this episode. Um, I think death trap is going on at the parlor. So if you want to see the longest running comedy thriller ever on Broadway, uh, but see it as a staged reading in a really cool, intimate space with world-class actors, man, come on out to Cornwall, come check out the parlor and see what the show is like. Have some drinks, have some desserts on us. Um, enjoy the hell out of yourself. So, uh, death trap. Yes, that is going on while I'm just checking the calendar that will be going on when this episode drops. Other stuff uh, that you guys should know, we're doing a lot of play production stuff right now that I can't get into just yet. Um, oh, I know what I have to tell you guys. Okay, so um, we'll do more announcements about this uh, as we get closer and closer to the time. Um, we'll even do them earlier in the episode so you're not waiting 
over two hours to hear about this. But um, November, Veterans Day weekend, the 11th, 12th, and 13th of November, we will have our inaugural. Man, we're doing everything for the first time. This has been a year of nothing but inaugural this, inaugural that. This will be our inaugural 10-minute playwriting festival. It's called Death Before Dress Rehearsal, and it is staged readings of 18 phenomenal veteran-authored 10-minute plays. It is, um, I cannot wait for this uh, event. It is. Uh, it really is born out of the fact that in the course of reading, whatever the hell it was, 190-ish uh, 10-minute plays, um, actually more than that, it's going to be two iterations. So God, uh, uh, 300, 400, somewhere around there, 300, 400 10-minute plays. There were so many strong plays uh, that I read. And obviously, I had to call those lists down to the top 10 um, for our judges. And then they, you know, we give out grants to the top three. But um, there were so many good plays. That I was like, man, we got to do a festival so some of these plays can see the light of day and audiences can see them and appreciate them. Uh, the festivals could take place here in Cornwall at our parlor, which, as you guys know, is a whopping 16 seats. So if you want to see the show live, which you really freaking should, uh, jump on it because uh, those seats are going to be gone in like 10 minutes. Uh, we'll have a, again, it's a three day festival. We'll have six plays a night. So six different plays. So yes, theoretically you could get seats uh, for each of the three nights because they will be different shows each night, but we will also live stream it. So even if you don't get off your duff and come here, uh, you'll be able to sit in the comfort of your own home and it won't be as cool as being in the space and, and, drinking and eating with us, but it'll still be pretty darn cool. And you'll get to see um, really cool, innovative, creative veteran writers writing in the short form. So something just to take note of that will be coming down the pike. You will hear more and more and more about death before dress rehearsal as time goes on. Okay. That's all I need to plug for today. Uh, My thanks to Mike Neal, our producer, who hopefully didn't have to do too much editing in this episode. And I think that's it. Yeah. That's all I'm going to leave you guys with. So I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks for you guys for being here. And on behalf of the veterans repertory theater, we will see you next time when we dive further into the savage wonder of it all.